0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So I'm gonna talk about the common good generally as that good that is higher and more lovable. And the context in which I'm gonna discuss the common good is an extremely general one which is just the general context of human action rightly ordered to ends or living well as a human being or human flourishing, right? Human flourishing both as individuals and as members of society. So when tradition, both classical pagan and medieval Christian tradition address the question of how to live, they do so very explicitly from the perspective Of human flourishing right or human perfection or human happiness I will use those three things interchangeably happiness flourishing perfection so that is to say they all sort of took it for granted that you should live in a way that accords with your nature as a human being what's a human being a human being is a rational creature created in the image and likeness of God or to put it another way you should act so as to reach your full potential as a human or a rational animal to attain what the Greeks called eudaimonia and the Latins called beatitudo. How many people have read Aristotle and have ever heard of eudaimonia? Okay, terrific. Um, yeah, so beatitudo is just the Latin equivalent. So, this idea of eudaimonia is some sort of activity that can rightly be understood in terms of the highest good. And both traditions, again, identify this as activity in accordance with virtue, right? So if you wanna understand eudaimonia, you're in the space of thinking about activity in accordance with virtue, or what Aristotle and Aquinas say is the same thing, right? The life of the rational part of the soul, right? The specifically rational part of you now of course the highest good is just a placeholder for something that can be further specified and in both traditions the answer was that the fullness of human happiness or human perfection consists in a kind of contemplative knowledge of god so interestingly the pagans and the christians agreed about this or to put it another way that the highest good is god as possessed in the intellect through an act of speculative knowing, right? Speculative knowing by way of contrast with practical knowing, right? If you, if you have practical knowledge, um, it's the knowledge that guides um, action or making, right? So if you're a shoemaker, you have a kind of practical knowledge, but also like if you are a political leader, you have a kind of practical knowledge of the good of society. Um, but speculative knowing is not not ordered towards doing or making, it's just knowing, right? So the highest good is God as possessed in the intellect through an act of speculative knowing. This is the fulfillment of a natural desire, right? So if anybody remembers the very famous opening of Aristotle's *Metaphysics*: all men by nature desire to know, and the evidence of this is the delight they take in their senses, right? So it's kind of natural desire to know, and this is both the source and the summit of the practical life. It's the source insofar as the precepts of the natural law. And um, so when we talk about the natural law in Aquinas, we're talking about cinderasis, which is a natural habit of the intellect that helps you to know sort of your basic goods as a human being. Um, and then corresponding natural inclinations of the will, right, to, to want to possess these goods. Um, these are the precepts of the natural law. These are the starting points of practical reasoning, right, so the starting points of practical reasoning are the ends, the things you want to attain. These are the starting points of practical reason and action. One of those is the natural desire to know and love God. Uh, so it's, this, it's the source right? But it's also the summit, right? And so far as this activity directed towards this object, namely the highest thing you could know, is the ultimate end of your practical thought, reasoning and action, right? So the goal of the practical life is ultimately speculative, right? The goal isn't itself practical. The goal is just knowing God, knowing God for its own sake, without reference to any further end, without any purpose outside of that knowing, and apart from any expression of what St. Augustine called the libido dominandi, that kind of desire for control and domination and conformity with your own will that he thought was the result of original sin. So as St. Augustine famously puts the point in the Confessions, and this is a formulation that Aquinas returns to in his treatise on happiness, in this Prima secunde, is Five Questions on Happiness. And he returns again and again to Augustine's formulation in the Confessions. How many people have read the Confessions? Anybody you read? It? Okay, oh, that's, that's terrific. This is a real university. <laughs> well, then you'll remember that St. Augustine characterizes human happiness as joy in the truth, right? That's what it means to be, perf- to be perfected as a human person is to find your joy in the truth. Now, this last end is the highest good, right? Which involves both knowledge and love of God as the highest common good, right? So the point of the talk is to try to tease out what it means to understand God as the highest common good understood in terms of a speculative act of knowing. But back to St. Augustine. So here's here's, here's the full quote from the Confessions. When I seek for you, my God, my quest is the happy life, the authentic happy life, to set one's joy on you, grounded in you and caused by you. Those who think that the happy life is found elsewhere pursue another joy and not the true one. Nevertheless, their will remains drawn towards some image of the true joy. Because the happy life is joy based on the truth, this happy life, everyone desires, joy and the truth everyone wants." So even if like you're confused (laughs) um, and you're not pursuing God as the highest common good, nevertheless, this is what you really want. Um, Okay, so Augustine and Aquinas both know, and Aristotle too, all too well, that not everybody knows um, that the contemplation of God is the highest common good, is that in which human happiness consists. So uh, Aquinas in the treatise on happiness says, well, you know, everybody, there's a natural desire for happiness. Everybody wants it um, and it's not chosen, but there's disagreement about what happiness consists in, right? That's, that's what all the arguments are. Like everybody recognizes that they wanna be happy, but you know, in what does happiness consist? So some people think that they'll be happy if they have a lot of money, or power, or honors, or pleasures, or some other image of the true joy, right? There are all kinds of apparent goods um, that apparently highest goods that we pursue as the highest good. So the diagnosis of what has gone wrong with people like this is that they mistake a lesser good for a greater good. So wealth is good, right? But it's not the highest good. And you can tell because it's not good for its own sake, right? It's not just good, right? So wealth, why do we accumulate wealth? Um, Because it's instrumentally valuable. It gives us other things that we want. Like, you know, uh, if, if for example, you have a large family, you have a lot of bills, uh, if you send those kids to college, you have astronomical bills, right? So, so wealth is good. It, it gives you things that you want. Uh, power is also good, right? When it's used wisely, honor, pleasure—there's nothing. These are goods, right? Um, but they're just not the highest good. So there is some kind of hierarchy of goods or ordering of goods, um, and it belongs to the practically wise person to recognize the right ordering of goods right so that you don't make the mistake of substituting a lesser good for a higher good Um, and usually end up in that position Um, it's usually not just merely being wrong (laughs) Um, but you usually end up uh, pursuing a lesser good because of some vice, right so uh vices being the the opposites of virtues and those kind of narrow and distort your vision of the good uh in interesting ways so at any rate these people um who are pursuing these uh, images of the true joy these are people who have to some extent obviously lost sight of what the true highest common good is um and in particular they are likely to put the private good above the common. So this is something that um, all three of these A's that I keep talking about, Aristotle, Augustine, and Aquinas uh, talk about a great deal. Um, Okay, but before we can get to an explanation of what common goods are, I think uh, we need to back up and first say some things about the good, right? So what is the good? And um, I'm just going to say, and we can talk about it when when I'm done speaking, that we should be realists about the good. That is to say, we should believe that we are attracted to things because they really are good or desirable, um, and not say that things are good or desirable just because we're attracted to them, right? So values are not something that we human beings project onto an otherwise cold and indifferent universe. Um, Rather, the world is actually shot through with goodness Um, of various kinds and we do have an ability to know and to respond to what is really and truly good outside of ourselves. Um, So we don't want to make the mistake of only making the good about human beings. Um, There's plenty of good without us. So. One entry point into making sense of talk of goodness in this robust, realistic sense that I am recommending to you is to recognize, as classical philosophy and uh, classical theology did, that goodness is of the end. So that's sort of like like a famous formulation. What does that mean? It means that when we think about what is good, we are thinking about the perfections of things. So it makes sense for tradition to affirm that truth is the good of the intellect, right? That's something that it makes sense to say. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that truth is the good of the intellect? It simply means that the well-functioning of the intellect, its measure, or its goodness, uh, quay, intellectual activity, is truth. Because the goal of intellectual activity, the thing that you're aiming at essentially when you engage in thought, reasoning and judgment is truth Um, so that's the measure so just you know to put it in really obvious terms a judgment or a belief is good insofar so far as it's true and it's bad insofar so far as it's false so if I form the belief that Regent University is a Catholic College because I was invited here by Catholics I have a false belief based on some bad reasoning because it clearly doesn't follow from the fact that there are some Catholics at Regent that it's a Catholic university. That would be like a bad inference. Um, and so my belief would be bad, right? It would be a bad belief because it would be false. And as soon as I realize that my belief does not match with the way things really are, then I have to revise my belief accordingly, right? Because it's not true, so it's a bad belief. I have to throw it out. So, you know, my belief needs to be true And that just means that it needs to be adequate to the way things are, right? So when I form beliefs, I'm forming, um, I'm, I'm assenting to something in my mind, some kind of proposition, say, about the way things really are. And that is either adequate to the way things really are to reality, or it's not, right? I mean, if it's adequate to the way things really are, then we say that it's true. So truth is the measure or the good of the intellect it's not something that we've conventionally chosen. It's the natural end or the natural good of the intellect. And correspondingly, the natural desire to understand is the natural desire to grasp reality or being in an intellectual mode. And we have this desire insofar as we have intellectual capacities, right? Um, but I just, I want to stress that truth cannot be reduced to useful agreement or pragmatic consensus. So um, I often debate um, other philosophers, and lately I've, I've been debating college presidents about what a university is and what a university is for. And my answer is, well, you know, it's, a, it's to pursue truth as a common good. That's what we're doing here. and. Uh, I'm often met with this idea that uh, there's really no such thing as truth. To which my response is well, I don't know what we're doing (laughs) Um, What are we doing if if we're not seeking the truth here? Um, Right, so it so it can't be reduced to just pragmatic consensus or some kind of social construction Um, okay now what we can only so so I've been talking about the intellect and I've been talking about truth But of course, I really need to get to talking about desire and love because I'm going to be talking about common goods. One thing that I want to say about desire is that we can only desire what we first know. Right. Um, This is something that goes back to Plato. Right. It's right there in the symposium. Right. The desire is always a desire for something. You don't just like desire right? Like, oh, uh. <laughs> you have to desire something. It has to have an object, some kind of intentional object. What is it that you desire? Now, the object of your desire will come from cognition, right? Um, you, you, have to, you have to perceive or know something in order to want it. Um, so we first perceive some good or, or we intellectually cognize in some way some good, and then we're drawn to pursue that good. Right. And conversely, right, when you perceive some evil, um, then you are not drawn towards it, but right, you're drawn away from it. You want to avoid evil. Um, So but you first have to have that cognitive recognition, right, that it's either good or bad Um, and desire uh, follows from that or aversion follows from that. Right. But the the first moment is cognitive. Right. Now, when Aquinas speaks about appetite, he actually has three distinct senses of appetite, only two of which would be called desire in the sense that I just stipulated. So there's first the natural appetite that comes along with his conception of natural form, which is sort of a metaphysical notion that he picks up from Aristotle. Um, So I'll just try to explain this by way of example. So you can think of an oak tree. There are probably lots of beautiful oak trees on campus. Um, so the oak tree sort of naturally strives to reach its telos, right? Its goal, which is sort of you know, the big, beautiful, flourishing tree that you see on campus. Uh, but it doesn't start out that way. It starts out as an acorn. It's kind of crazy that that little acorn can become some you know 400-year-old massive oak tree. Um, but it, it contains within itself, right, the potential to become that. Now, interestingly, most acorns will not, in fact, become oak trees. It's actually quite rare for an acorn to become an oak because, like, all sorts of things have to be correct, right? You have to have all the right conditions and, uh, you know, like, the world has to do you a favor. But, um, but, th- but that's, what it's, that's what it's set up to become. So Aquinas just calls that natural appetite. Right, and he just means that all of the voc, all of the oak's vital activities, are ordained to that end, and all of that potentiality, right, which is not not actualized yet, but all that potentiality is there, in the acorn. Um, but all of the oak's vital activities, you know, it's taking in nutrients, the establishing of roots, uh, the Whatever the budding out that happens in spring, but like all of that is for say or is for the sake of becoming a mature, flourishing oak. Um, now the oak doesn't experience desires. It's not like the oak is sitting around like, oh, I can't wait till I'm a grown-up oak. Um, that's not happening. Um, so because the oak doesn't have any cognitive capacities. At least so far as we know, oaks don't perceive the world. <laughs> um, so you know that's that's why we don't feel bad. You know when when you like saw off a limb of an oak, it doesn't feel pain. Um, it doesn't have perceptual capacities generally, um, but it but it has been ordained to an end that can be known. Right? We can know that the budding out is for the sake of becoming the flourishing oak, even though the oak doesn't know it okay but to desire in this experiential sense right the sense in which we desire things um requires either perception or judgment so sheep sees a wolf and desires to flee it sees some grass and desires to eat we also experience sense desires or um yeah sensual desires i guess you might say um so just Basic example, you're walking past a bakery and you like just catch this, you know, the smell of fresh croissants. And just for the sake of argument, let's assume that you love croissants. They're quite delicious. Um, And so immediately, right, upon smelling it, you like you want to eat it. You just have this prick of sense desire. Um, And you experience maybe hunger or just, if not hunger, just this this desire to have the delectable treat. Um, But you're not determined by your instincts, right? You have a higher form of desire, which Aquinas calls the will. And so this sort of desire, this higher desire, depends on practical reason and judgment. So you have the capacity to judge what is needful, right, or good for you to do in whatever set of unique circumstances you happen to find yourself in, here and now. Um, So you might not get the croissant. And there might be any number of reasons why you don't get the croissant. Maybe it's because of a fasting requirement. Maybe it's because you're trying to save your money. Maybe it's because you have high cholesterol. Maybe you're on a diet. I don't know, right? Maybe you don't like, you know, maybe it's a Starbucks croissant. You don't, you don't want to give Starbucks your money. <laughs> um, so, so the fact that you have some sense desire doesn't determine what you're going to do, right? You were you're going to make some judgment. So, what's the difference between sense desire and judgment? Well, when any particular good presents itself to you, you can and in fact must determine whether it accords with the universal code of living well. So either eating that croissant is living well or it's not, and whether it's living well or not actually like really depends on a whole lot of things. It's probably fine, right? But it might not be, right? If you are under a fasting requirement, you shouldn't eat that croissant. Uh, it would be bad in that case. Um, so, so you you're going to have to make a judgment of reason and. Uh, And then corresponding to that, you will make a choice, right? Choice is an act of the will. Uh, Judgment is an act of the practical intellect. Um, So what this little example shows us is that there are different kinds of desires that you experience, and there are different kinds of love as well, right? So Aquinas calls the love associated with choice a kind of dilection. Um, and the love associated with, you know, just smelling the croissant kind of kind of passion. Um, okay, so there's natural love, there's sensitive or passionate love, and then finally there's rational love. And now what's interesting about human beings is that all three loves are co-present in you, right? Um, you have things that you naturally desire by, by nature, Justin Berger being a human being, one of those desires we've already established is your desire for happiness. Um and then you have all kinds of sense desires because you have all these perceptual capacities. Um and then you have the the kind of rational desire uh sorry, rational loves associated with the will. Um okay. And in order to have well-ordered loves, you have to develop what Aquinas calls the virtues, right? So read your aristotle or you've read your augustine then you know that virtues are sort of stable dispositions of thought feeling and action right so you've got your intellectual virtues the virtues that perfect your intellectual capacities um you have your moral virtues which perfect um, all of your various appetites so including your passions right temperance fortitude these regulate passions, um, and then justice would be a virtue that regulates the will. Um, so you're not born with these virtues, unfortunately. It would be really great if you were. Um, but you're not. You have to cultivate them over time. And, uh, and you have to maintain them. Because the thing about justice is you're never done with it. It's not like fixing a bug. You know, your bike is broken. Oh, I fixed my bike, my bike is fixed. I'm done with that, I can do something else. It's not like that with justice, you're never done with it. You're never done with it, you're never done with temperance. Um, So you have to cultivate them and maintain them. Um, One thing that Aquinas says about virtue is that it's like second nature. What does he mean by that? He just means that once you, once you have these stable dispositions, right, then you act, you not only do the right thing, um, but you do it with ease and pleasure, right? So you're not like divided against yourself, it's not difficult, you do it with ease and pleasure. Um, So it's like a second nature to you, but it's based on what you might call first nature. So you're the kind of thing that needs to acquire these virtues and is, is disposed to acquire them in some sense. Okay, so there are different kinds of desires, different kinds of loves, and different kinds of goods, right? These these things go together. And Aquinas recognizes a hierarchy of goods and he's really clear and he's following Aristotle here. He's following Aristotle and Christian tradition that the common goods are higher, right? Um, So what's a common good? Well, we've already seen how Aquinas understands goodness generally, it's that which is desirable or reputable, properly understood So in virtue of what are goods common, right? There are three features of commonality that I think are worth highlighting in terms of initially starting to think about what makes common goods common. The first is they're goods that are common to your nature, right? So it belongs to the human to want these goods. The second sense is that these goods are not competitive, okay? So a lot of goods... Um, are competitive goods in the sense that if I take it, there's less of that good for everybody else. So if I get some milk from the store, there's less milk for everybody else. And it's some like the milk's kind gonna of run out. Um, so that, that's a kind of competitive good. And the common kind of good isn't like that. Um, it's not competitive. So truth is a common kind of good. If I get some truth, it doesn't detract. Third it's never uh, the sole possession of an individual okay so if we're talking about a common good we're talking about something that is participatory in the sense that it is a good that depends on people sort of um participating in the good to- together um and also enjoying it together so my example of this is an orchestra playing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So, um, no single member of the orchestra can bring that symphony into being like that French horn player can be playing his part perfect and it's not going to be Beethoven's Ninth, right? He's He's got to bring it together with, with everybody else. Um, but also the joy that comes through playing, right, is is something that can only be had once everybody's doing it together, right? So any individual musician um, cannot cannot pull this off on its own, right? So we're talking about shared activity for a common end. So common activity for a common end. You, you have to have both. And of course, the end is the governing principle, right? So the so, so, Beethoven's night is what's governing everybody's activity in the orchestra, um, and of course it's not competitive, right, like, it would be bonkers if the French horn player were trying to outdo, you know, like, the guy on the piano who was trying to outdo the soprano, like, that doesn't make sense, <laughs> this is, a, this is a cooperative activity. okay. So, common to all human beings, uh, not competitive, cooperative, never the sole possession of an individual. Those are three important features of common goods. Um, Common goods cannot be reduced to private goods, right? So um, one mistake that we run into when thinking about the common good is just to think about it as a shared good. Um, But that's not right, and I will give you an example to bring this out. So recently I was at the South Carolina State Fair with my kids, Um, and at the South Carolina State Fair, which is probably true of every state fair everywhere, the prices for everything are obscene, but especially the prices for food and drink. Like you want funnel cakes, it's like 10 bucks. Um, So one lemonade, one lemonade, it's a big lemonade, but one lemonade costs $7 and I have six kids. so. And you have to imagine like it's hot outside because it's south carolina of course they don't let you bring your own water because of like terrorism and the plague or something so you have to buy the food and drink in the fair um so we're all gonna have to share this one you know gigantic lemonade um that i've waited like an hour and a half in line for so what that means is that each kid is gonna get his own portion of the lemonade And obviously the extent to which one kid drinks his fair portion, there's less lemonade for everybody else, right? So the lemonade is like shared and common, but it's not a common good, right? And of course, anyway, one kid always inevitably drinks more than his fair share because of original sin. And so there are like these massive fights and nobody even enjoys it anyway. So my kids are very virtuous. Anyway, so it's a (laughs) (laughs) mistake. It's not just that it's shared, is my point. Um, Okay, it's also a mistake. Like, it's not going to be very fruitful. Um, So so we shouldn't contrast, we shouldn't think of common goods as just shared goods, but we also shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that the central contrast, right, is between common goods and individual goods, right? I think that's the initial contrast that our mind goes for. It definitely was for me. Um, and I was confused about this for a long time. Um, and this is wrong because rightly understood, my individual good and your individual good is only fully intelligible in relation to the common goods to which it is ultimately ordered, right? So um, so really, properly understood, your individual good is going to make reference to common goods. So. If we return to the idea that we're talking about human flourishing, which we're definitely talking about, and if we think of this, uh, in terms of the full realization of human nature, then we should remember that we are rational, social, political animals, and we only flourish in society together. We do not flourish alone as isolated individuals. That's like an American myth that is not true. Um, And this is why virtue orients us ultimately to common goods, right? So even if you think about like temperance or fortitude, which are regulations of passions, right? Fortitude is a regulation of fear. Temperance is a regulation of sensual desire for sex and food and drink. Um, That seems like a really individual thing. but it all gets kicked up in a higher register through general justice, right, In Aristotle. Um, And Aquinas says something really beautiful in his discussion of temperance and fortitude. He says that, um, you know, uh, he says that they protect reason, right? Because when you're really afraid or you're in the grip of some, like really intense sexual desire you don't have awesome judgment it's it's not good um, and so ultimately he thinks justice itself hangs on hangs on this stuff so ultimately um the regulation of your passions even is is oriented towards the common good um you know the, the, the virtue of justice orients us to common life together in society Okay, so when we think about the flourishing of the person, we cannot ignore the flourishing of the people because the two are essentially related. And so when we think about individual flourishing, we are thinking about the common good of the family. We're thinking about the common good of political society. We also, I think, are thinking about the common good of smaller societies like unions, universities, orchestras. So what I'm suggesting is there's no real reflection on human flourishing outside the order of justice, right? Justice is the virtue that regulates your relationships with other people, um, and also the order of charity, right? The order of charity um, regulates, so if justice is about human society and human friendship, then charity is about divine society and divine friendship. And Aquinas is very explicit about this. Um, the virtue of charity allows you to have friendship with God. And of course, friendship is a kind of love. All right, let me uh, say something about friendship because I think reflection on friendship kind of helps us to think a little bit about what the common good is like. So friendship is a kind of mutual love in which the friends will one another's good and share in one life together, right? So, you're not really friends with somebody if you just, like, wish them well. You know, like, it's really easy to wish somebody well, um, you know, you just don't, like, whatever. Wishes are easy. But friends share one life together, okay, so they share, they share a common life. Um, now in friendship, one takes the good of the friend to be essential to one's own good. Such that the friend's happiness becomes an essential part of one's own happiness. This is like part of the self-consciousness of friendship. So the happiness of friends is a common good in which both friends participate. Obviously, we're not in competition with our friends, or we shouldn't be. If you are, you're in trouble. Um, we rejoice in their good when it is attained, and we sorrow and we feel sorrowful when harms befall our friends. When friends seek goods for each other, they treat the friend as another self. So what the friend wants for himself, his own happiness, is no longer understood in a private way. He wants it to be something shared in a reciprocal way with the friend, right? So I think in friendship, you see this kind of self-transcendent perspective in which someone starts to see their good in relation to a greater whole. And really, like when you're thinking about the common good, again, you're thinking of something participatory. So you're thinking about being a member or a part in something that's greater than yourself, a greater whole. Um, So a friend understands himself as a part in the sense of a participant, and a union of will and affection with another person. And again, when you take up this perspective, it's not all about you. Um, Your happiness is now bound up in very intricate ways with the happiness of your friend. So if your friend suffers, you suffer. If your friend flourishes, you flourish. Um, so, in this sense, friendship is a true communion, so that the perspective of the self as a separate thing is no longer primary, right? Um, and another thing that Aristotle says that's really interesting is he says, um, The just need friends, but friends don't need justice. He doesn't mean that like friends can just like willy nilly, you know, murder one another and steal from one another. It's, obviously not what he means. Um, But I think what he means is like, look, um, as a friend, I return your laptop that I borrowed to you, not just because I owe it to you as a matter of justice, though I do owe it to you as a matter of justice, or just out of respect for you as a human person, or some kind of Kantian respect for the moral law. Um, But I do it because it's good for us, this communion of persons, and because I love you. And that's, that's different. Um, and Aristotle thinks it's higher. Um, So that is the good, right, that you want to maintain and promote. You want to maintain the common good. Okay, so reflection on concrete examples of human friendship helps us to see that the self-transcendence that you achieve through friendship is not a kind of selflessness. It's not a forgetting of the self. Um, rather, it's a kind of expansion of the self. It involves transcending a more enclosed mode of selfhood for the sake of a higher, more expansive mode of selfhood. Um, and so I, and, and I think that's, that's part of like growth in the moral life is this expansion of the self. And so the love of friendship is neither like self-regarding as opposed to other-regarding, nor is it other-regarding um, rather than self-regarding. What I would say is that the regard for the self now necessarily includes regard for the other, right? So it's not an, an I-thou sort of thing, but it's a we, right? We are friends. Okay. Uh, another thing that I want to say about the common good, and I promise I only have one page left, um, is that there's really no hope about thinking clearly about the common good outside of thinking about a society. So really briefly, what does Aristotle, Aquinas, Catholic social teaching think about society? Society is a unity. It's a kind of unity that transcends the parts of its individual members. So it's not a natural organic unity. It's not like the unity of a plant, um, you know, where all the parts... (laughs) Uh, all, the, all the parts of the plant um, are for the sake of the whole plant, right? So in some sense, the whole is primary to the parts, um, but that is a natural unity. But a society is—and and a society isn't like that. Um, it's it's not a substance in an Aristotelian sense, but it's also not a mere collection of persons with shared interests, okay? it, it, it It's not like an additive thing. Um, there is a, excuse me, there is a society wherever there is a plurality of rational agents aiming at common ends through a common life, right? Through, through shared modes of activity together. Wherever you have that, you can speak meaningfully of a society, right? So you have the common ends and the common life together. Um, this is distinct from a partnership, right? So. If you you think of a partnership, like each partner contributes something and is entitled to whatever private benefit or yield that comes from their contribution. So like most business relationships are straightforward partnerships. Um, And the goods of such arrangements can be distributed and divided up, right, according to, well, the terms of a contract typically. But like you can divide it up neatly and rationally according to like the labor given. society isn't like that right you can't divide up the goods and distribute them in that way um, because again it's it's participatory um so whenever we speak of a common good we are not referring to private rights or private goods but membership and participation in a clearly defined social order where the social order is understood in terms of the common ends and the common forms of activity. Now, um, in Catholic social teaching, there are three necessary societies, probably not sufficient, but at least necessary. And these are the family, the state and the church. Um, so you can think about how each of those would be a society and therefore uh, the, the notion of a common good would would get hold in them. Okay. Um, So now I just want to throw it into a theological register, and then we'll have time for discussion. Okay, so I just want to talk briefly about society with God and the order of charity. So Aquinas follows Aristotle in thinking that the blessed or happy life requires virtue, um, but he makes a bunch of distinctions that Aristotle doesn't. He distinguishes first between imperfect and perfect happiness, Aristotle thinks only imperfect happiness is possible. So happiness is like a chancy thing. You know, in book eight, he's like, hey, look at Priam, that could be you, right? And it has nothing to do with your virtue. It's just like tragedy is possible. Uh, The world's gotta do you a favor, et cetera. Um, And of course, Aristotle only has the conception of natural virtue um, that corresponds to natural happiness or imperfect happiness, which is this chancy thing. Um, and natural virtue is virtue that, um, you don't cultivate it on your own, um, because that sort of sounds like some sort of weird, rugged individualism that Aristotle wouldn't go in for, but there's no, um, it's not, it's not necessary for something like above you as a human being to help you be virtuous. That is to say there's nothing supernatural going on. But Aquinas thinks that it does make sense to talk about perfect happiness. Um, that is to say happiness that is not chancy and that in fact once attained can never be lost. Um, but he doesn't think he can have it in this life. Um, this would be your supernatural end and he thinks you can't attain it through your own powers, right? So, like, you can't earn it, you can't merit it.
1: There's no amount of
0: hard work you could do, right, that's going to get you this supernatural. And um, it requires God's grace. And so he has a distinction between natural virtue and, and um, you know, theological virtue or supernatural virtue. And of course, what are the three theological virtues? What are they? Yes, faith, hope, and love. Um, And the greatest of these is love. Yes, so, um, right. So our perfect happiness or our beatitude consists for Aquinas in beholding God as he is in his essence or the beatific vision. We cannot get this through natural virtue, Um, but the goods that we enjoy in this life are a foretaste, right, of our supernatural end So we have these theological virtues that direct us to God, to life with God. And these are faith, hope, and love where faith is a perfection of the intellect and hope and love are perfections of the will. And we only get these through God's grace, right? You can't um, get these on your own. Um, You have to cooperate with God's grace and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit But that's a very different thing from acquiring Aristotelian virtue. Um, Now, Aquinas also thinks contra Aristotle. I keep, you know, I keep talking about how much they agree, but there are some respects in which they really disagree. Um, So Aristotle, like all pagans that I can think of, deny that you can be friends with God. Because, like, why would God care about you? He doesn't care about you. Um... And, uh, Aquinas thinks, um, that in the order of charity, we are called to friendship with God and, uh, to enter into society with God, right? Um, so in the order of grace, we can be brought into the divine life and Aquinas thinks that grace perfects nature, it perfects and elevates nature and takes it up into something higher. Um, And Aquinas is very clear that God is the highest common good of all creation, right? But in a special way, we are called, right, to happiness with God. And only a rational creature is called to happiness because it's a perfection of the intellect. So obviously, if you don't have an intellect, you can't be called to that. Um, And it is a life of friendship and this is a common good. Okay, so just very briefly, I want to return to Augustine's formulation now in light of all that's been said about the common good. So remember that Augustine's formulation, which Aquinas assents to, is that happiness is joy in the truth, understood as possessing God in an act of contemplative knowledge. Well, this is possession of the highest common good that is truth, right? Truth is a, is a common good. It's common to all human beings by virtue of natural law, which ordains us to that end. It's not competitive and it's participatory, right? And um, I think we have this view of contemplation in which it's an isolated thing. But even Aristotle is very clear that the goods of contemplation are higher when you contemplate with friends Right? So he thinks friends should contemplate together. Um, so contemplation is not something outside the life of friendship, right? It's right. It, it's right at the heart of it insofar as this tradition explicitly identifies the life of friendship as the context of virtue. Um, we can also say that Jesus tells us right, that heaven is a kind of kingdom. It's a kind of society, Um, and, you know, you obviously have to engage in a lot of theological imagination to say exactly what that society is like, because we don't exactly know, but one good example of theological imagination is Dante's Paradiso, and I think Dante's Paradiso, which is a poem I very highly recommend to you, I recommend the entire Divine Comedy, Um, But paradise is Dante's vision of heaven, and heaven is a place for Dante where you rest in the good. You rest. You're no longer, it's no longer the act of life, you're no longer doing. You just rest in the fullness of the good, which is the possession of God, right, through an act of the intellect. And there are all kinds of cool people in heaven with <laughs> Dante, including obviously all the saints. Um, and, and there is actually a kind of, there's a kind of society. Now, this is, this is again an act of theological imagination, but I think that this um, theoretical superstructure of the higher good helps to see the extent to which it is a very profound exercise of theological imagination.